It's time for the head. It's time for the headed.com radio show. Headed.com radio is an in-depth look at all things VA. If you need help with the VA, log on to headed.com. Now, here's your host, Gerald Cook. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, on this uh, 17th day of uh, September, 2015. We're here with a co-host, Jay Basser. And today our guest speaker is John Rossi with the Blue Water Navy. How are you doing today, John? Well, I'm doing all right, Gerald. I'm trying to keep up with things, and things keep moving. So it's uh, it's an ever-losing ever battle. Well, it looks like the Blue Water Navy might, just might, be getting ready to uh, get some good news uh, uh, how close are you guys to having that bill boated on on the floor there? Well, um, like you say, it appears that we've got some uh, uh, good momentum this time. Um, we've got some um, great, great support in both the House and the Senate. Uh, the House uh, has 269 co-sponsors. And, of course, uh, if you get uh, 218 or more to vote, uh, you've got more than 50% right there. So we've got a few more than half, um, pretty close to two-thirds there. Um, in the Senate, there are uh, it's, it's harder to get the senators to sign on ahead of time to, to co-sponsor, but uh, there's 20-something um, senators that are... That are in the queue, and uh, and many others that have said yes if it comes to the floor, they they'll support it. Um, so the question: How close are we? Um, closer than we've ever been. Uh, we're still waiting for. At least we were yesterday. I don't know what the outcome today was, but we're still waiting for a CBO score, um, and that always seems to be a. A particular technical problem that um, slows things down. Uh, you know, would you explain that CBO score uh, for the listeners out there in case they're not aware of what what that really is? Oh, you betcha. Yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm uh, stuck in using the slang here. Uh, when a bill is uh, presented to the floor for a vote. Uh, people want to know how much it's going to cost. Uh, otherwise, it's the same as writing a blank check. So they require that the Congressional Budget Office, the CBO, um, review the bill and uh, make an estimate of what the cost of the bill is going to be. And that's called their score. So it's essentially it's it's uh, what they're calling the, the CBO score is the dollar amount that is estimated that the bill might cost. So that's uh, without that, we've we've got uh, people sitting back, going, "Well, you know, geez, I I would you know like to support your cause, but the, since we don't know how much it's going to cost, uh, I, I'm not going to be able to vote for it because it it could you know bankrupt the system or or whatever." So uh, it's an important element with with any legislation. Well, I can understand that. That's a good explanation. 
it uh, and, and that's just a rough estimate, but at least it gives them something to point their finger at and say, look, this is what the CBO score was. So uh, I felt like it uh, it was proper and in line with uh, uh, the circumstances there. So I voted in favor of it. Exactly. Yeah, and it uh, um, one question, obvious question, is why don't we have a CDO score? Um, and I think that there's a couple of answers uh, that that could be true with that one. Uh, this this entire blue water navy um, scene is in flux. It's it's still changing, uh, even as we speak. It's um, it's unknown what certain things are going to happen, and, and uh, one of the key uh, elements of of this unknown is a recent decision by the Court of Appeals for Veteran Claims uh, in April of this year, where they were faced with the question of uh, the inland water and um, and the harbor situation uh, is uh, or maybe I should say are any of any or all of the harbors uh, inland water and that was that was heard and decided on back in in April and the conclusion that the court came to was that the definitions that the VA had been using for inland water, uh, were inconsistent, um, and also the uh, uh, definitions that the and the application essentially of, of what the VA was using to determine whether a ship was in or at the mouth of a river were very inconsistent. Also, um, so they they essentially said. Well, we're not going to tell you what those should be. We want you, the VA, to submit new definitions that uh, are consistent and meet our approval. Now, that um, uh, that ruling, as I say, was April. I think it was April 23rd, and the uh, the VA has on had 120 days to. Uh, appeal that decision, which they did not do. So that essentially meant that uh, that, that ruling of the court is, is in force, and the VA is uh, expected to submit new uh, definitions and how to apply those definitions consistently uh, across the board to all harbors and all ships and um, so that, uh, that they actually use the words arbitrary and capricious in their application of these of these terms. Uh, the VA has not presented any uh, new rules yet, and we're not certain if they are going to. And uh, in the court ruling, there's no timeline on when this is going to be required. Uh, that's not good news, uh, because if they don't submit uh, what the court uh, uh, requested, then uh, what's going to happen? I mean, uh, 
what's your alternatives here or your options or well the one thing we know the one thing we know for sure is uh, because of that court ruling the VA could no longer use the reasons and the rules that they have been using for the past uh, since 2002 actually um, the, the, to deny uh, claims of the Blue Water Navy so uh, just as an example uh, the, the, the some of the uh, examples that were used in the court uh, Hang Harbor which is surrounded on three sides by land and has a, uh, an opening to the sea is not a very deep harbor in terms of uh, the, the uh, depth of the, of the shelf itself uh, which extends out into the into the ocean uh, the South China Sea um, and that is considered to be not an inland water location, um, as opposed to, for instance, uh, Quinon Harbor, uh, which is, uh, which in, again is is a harbor, but um, it, it is uh, it requires a little bit of. Uh, uh, smaller harbor mouth going into it um, but why is that an inland water when Da Nang Harbor is not and that's where the court uh, became confused as to exactly what rules the VA was providing to distinguish uh, that harbor being an inland waterway and any other harbor not being an inland waterway there's a there's a um, very important reason why that's important right now at this moment, <clears throat> and that is if Denang Harbor, uh, as well as several of the others, but Denang is it was the, the one of the key harbors uh, that uh, that involved most of the ships on the gun line. Um, if the Nang Harbor is ruled to be an inland water, inland waterway, then approximately 80, this is our guess, 80% of the ships that uh, were in Vietnam or in the theater of combat uh, probably entered some harbor, usually and mostly Nang Harbor, uh, and we can also say Vung Tau, which is uh, down at the uh, towards the delta. And if those ships are then considered to be inland water ships, which is the same as that uh, infamous list of ships that uh, um, they keep adding to, um, then the the cost of our bill just went down by eighty percent. So one thing that the CBO could be waiting for is a determination by the VA as to how to determine these harbors uh, and inland waterways. Well, how many ships do they have a total so far right now? Uh, ruled as inland water ships? Yeah. Uh, it's it's uh, 
Ooh, boy. It's very close to 300. Um, I think it's just short of that. Uh, when we when we add up the crew members of how many crew served on those uh, 300 ships, we, we come up with about uh, 80, 80 to 82,000 uh, crew members over the course of the uh, you know the, the entire Vietnam War uh, who served on those particular ships on those particular times that they were designated to be on inland waters. Um, now, what what happens when they become designated as the inland water? Well, they then are removed from the pool of individuals that is considered to be Blue Water Navy personnel, and they fall under the existing regulations, uh, 38 CFR 3.307 and 3.309, I think. Um, And they are then considered to be uh, the same as um, in-country Vietnam veterans, and they're immediately covered in their cost by existing funds. So they're not new um, individuals needing to be added back into the Agent Orange Act of 1991. They, they're then considered to be part of that group that is still um, part of the Agent Orange Act of 91. Uh, and, and why there's a separation there is that in 2002, the VA provided a new definition of what a Vietnam veteran was. Uh, what they essentially said was a Vietnam veteran is someone who served with their boots on the ground or served on the inland waterways of Vietnam. So when they start messing with the definition of inland waterways, uh, that's where the cost of this bill becomes confusing. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Go ahead, John. That makes them them eligible under the NEMR stipulation, too, if they wish to get that passed. So they would be uh, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah the the, the, uh, the the ones that would be considered to be um, on inland water would fall under the, uh, like you mentioned, the neighbor. Uh, they would be a, a part of that class of individuals, and that has to do with the um, date of when their uh, compensation would start if they're found to be. Uh, disabled, and under the NEMR regulation, that uh, date is the first date of application, um, yeah. or first, and, and in some cases, these guys applied for their benefits, gee, uh, you know, it's five, yeah. it's ten years ago, just uh, yeah. plenty of, a long time ago, and then, and of course, and then that kicks up the cost required. Uh, under the existing situation, but it, it still lowers the cost for the Blue Water Navy bill. It still lowers the cost, I mean, for the bill, because, I mean, once it falls into the existing st- 
stimulation of the financial training that's already there. Um, people look at funding, and especially in Congress and Senate, you know, they're looking, they're so afraid something new is going to cost money, especially conservative because they don't want that they don't want big government spending more money. They want to save money. But what it comes down to is that uh, the VA itself is not really new money. Some of it is new money, but most of it is just recycled money. It's like a bus. One man gets on, one man gets off. So that money well, goes back into the system. That, that's, a, that's a good way of looking at it, I think, because, because there is a, a, a good circular uh, flow of, of the money. Um, yeah. But unfortunately, when uh, legislation is put on the table, uh, it's considered to be separate and independent from every everything else, and they say, okay, how much is this going to cost without uh, really giving a lot of thought to what, to what you just said? Well, this actually it really should be explained. The attorneys is actually presenting this order, explains it into a way that to where I think if I explain it in this situation, I think you'll get a whole boatload of senators jump on board. Because it's not really new money. I mean, sure, there's going to be CBL score, and sure, there's going to be money involved, but it's not, uh, you know, even though it's a potential for 80,000 veterans to be service-connected, not all of the 80,000 people are sick. You know, you got a little percentage right. of those folks that are sick, so you're looking at probably eight to 10,000, maybe a little more. And that's what you got to look at the numbers. And it's very, very strange because it's all forecast, John. And, you know, it's like forecasting the weather. You don't know if it's going to rain or not. That's, you know, that's how uh, that's right. Well, it, it's forecast. the estimate that they that they yeah. do, and and uh, now the 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 strange thing um, that that I've seen on this particular legislative cycle is the uh, the CBO has been in contact with the um, Senate Veteran Affairs Committee, and they have provided an estimate of what they think that this bill is going to cost, but it's not a quote. Uh, uh, official CBO score. It was something to that they asked for guidance on on a uh, estimate of what the bill is going to cost. Now I don't see a difference myself because if they tell the, some committee that that the bill is possibly probably going to cost maybe this X amount of dollars, uh, that's that's just as much of a guesswork as the final estimate that comes out. You won't know until you begin the program. That's right. Exactly right. So you know. So okay. So so let's throw some numbers around. What what could this bill cost? Well, uh, if the harbors become inland waterways, and and there's some very good reason that they should be considered logically to be inland waterways, then the bill will probably cost about a uh, hundred million dollars over ten years. Now, ten years, a hundred million dollars—that's not much because you could take uh, uh, some money and put it into a nice uh, uh, interest-bearing account and pay for this thing over uh, the ten-year period, using a lot of the interest from that. They take a bond out or something. Yeah, well, you know, if they were smart, they'd be doing that on a lot of stuff. Um, yeah. But they don't—they don't need the hundred million dollars right away. They need it piece by piece over the 
period. It's enough to pay for the disabilities of the of the probable uh, Blue Water Navy claims that will come in. It's enough to pay for the DIC for the ones that uh, don't make it the full 10 years, and it's enough to pay for uh, past uh, monies for the claims of, of the Blue Water Sailors. So uh, at least that's the way that, that we're looking at the at that dollar figure because we agree with the with the congressional budget office that that's probably what what the cost is uh, once this determination is made on inland waters now let's for the listeners don't go ahead some of these listeners don't under they don't really have an idea what the congressional budget office is that's the office that's the office for congress and basically, it's a bunch of employees. It's kind of a think tank. And you know, there's a bunch of number crunchers, kind of like analysts. And uh, some of these ideas that come up pretty pretty wild when they start doing budget cuts and stuff. You see a lot of their stuff. But uh, they're effective when it comes to actually doing, you know, budget negotiations and, and you know, at least trying to get some kind of cost analysis on, on a bill like this. So, but... Uh, well, some kind of guidance is needed, and, and it's a, uh, they're a pretty logical group to put their heads together and, and using past experience and probability, they can they can come up with numbers that are sometimes pretty close to the, what what is reality. Um, in going to the to the technicality of this uh, inland water system. Um, the the VA has has agreed that uh, Agent Orange was sprayed on the inland waters. In other words, uh, uh, it it actually landed in the water, and that's what uh, essentially uh, causes the the contamination of the people that were on the boats and the ships, because that water is taken uh, on board uh, and, and refined or distilled for drinking water. And uh, if you know it's on the water, then the, there's a very high probability that that's exactly what, what you did with it, is you took it on board and, and uh, ended up uh, drinking it and fixing your food with it and, and stuff like that. Um, where the... Um, little distinctions come in is, well, okay, so this river water then flowed where? Well, it flowed out into the sea or, in in really most cases, it flowed into a harbor area uh, and then from there it flowed out the mouth of that harbor into the sea. So the, the uh, harbors of Vietnam, especially Da Nang Harbor, uh, have have two uh, the Ding Harbor has two rivers that that feed into the harbor. Uh, that obviously then says, well, the harbor essentially fills up with with uh, river water, which they agree is contaminated with uh, dioxin uh, from the Agent Orange. Uh, it was uh, mixed with petroleum products, so it floats. Um, 
it, it's not that this uh, landed in the water and immediately settled to the to the bottom of the river or or wherever. This stuff was mixed 50-50 with fuel oil, so it floated for quite some time. Uh, even when it finally uh, emulsified enough or deteriorated enough that that perhaps the the particulate matter settled to the to the floor of the of the harbor. Uh, these harbors were uh, 90 feet deep, maybe uh, at most. Uh, a lot less than that. Most most of them are less than that. Uh, so when a ship drops anchor, it uh, it does it for a particular reason. It wants to dig that anchor into the into the base soil that's that's underneath the water, and it uh, drops anchor. It it uh, puts uh, three times the depth of uh, anchorage that where they put that much chain on top of the anchor, and then they slowly back up until that anchor digs in. Well, that tr- churns up the uh, sediment that's at the bottom of the of the harbor. Uh, if one of the arguments is, well, gee, you know, you shouldn't worry about this stuff because it dropped to the to the floor of the harbor. Uh, on a daily basis, there were ships coming in there, dropping anchor and churning up that uh, uh, bottom of the of the harbor. The other thing, because it was such a shallow um, uh, causeway, was uh, the propellers on the ships as they go forward and backward. Uh, create cavitation where the water will suck up the stuff that's at that bottom of the of the harbor. So we've got constantly recirculating the the contaminated particles that were in the river because they ended up in the harbor. So don't know don't know if that one makes sense to you, but uh, but that's essentially what we're looking at in terms of. Um, how does this dioxin continue to play its role of being uh, the, the potential contaminant for the all of the ships of the Seventh Fleet? Well, they made routine uh, 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 trips uh, to the harbor and and docked their ships or dropped anchor. Then, uh, yeah. They're going to have a a, a real uh, stirred up concoction there. Anyone, a, even the the water, didn't the ships uh, filter uh, the seawater to to make it drinkable? Well, uh, let's look at that in in two parts. The ships were steam driven, um, and so they were continuously bringing in. Uh, salt water, uh, they would condense that salt water to uh, desalinate it, um, and they used it for their their steam plant. They used it to uh, pipe this water into the furnaces to uh, create steam, and the pressure of the steam is what drove the turbines, which drove the, the propeller, and provided all the uh, electrical power and such that, that were on board the ship. So that part of it needs to always be uh, processing the water. On the on the 
majority of the ships that were used in in the 60s and 70s, the freshwater tank was simply an offshoot of that main line coming in to feed the boilers. So when uh, when you're in close to the shoreline or in a harbor, uh, the the theory is that you're not supposed to make fresh water. Well, yeah, that that's a good theory unless you run out of fresh water, um, and then you're then you're going to have to either get it from on land, which was all contaminated, or you make your own water from what goes through your steam plant or heads towards the steam plant, and that's going to be contaminated water also. So it's kind of a uh, between a rock and a hard place there. Uh, the, the destroyers that were along the gun line and uh, would have been uh, often visiting the various harbors um, had a very, very simple water line system where uh, the main water line went to feed the boilers and you just uh, turned a, you know, open valve or closed a valve to, to fill the fresh water tanks. Well, it, it, it occurred after the desalination process took place. So even if you waited until you were out of the harbor, uh, you're running the water through what's now a contaminated uh, desalination system. So it comes down the same pipes and just takes a left turn and, and fills up the, the uh, fresh water tanks. So, in other words, you know, if they were in and out of fresh water, they had to generate water, uh, drinking water, right there. And uh, there was no way that they was uh, uh, cleaning up the water. Uh, actually, I think they found out years later that even though the water had been run through a filtering system or process, anyway, that it was still uh, contaminated with uh, 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 245-T or whatever the age you know and stuff is. Um, so uh, it, it was kind of like a catch-22. They had, uh, the sailors had their clothing moist in it. They took showers in it, and they drank it. And it was in the... Uh, I'll, of course, it'd be in the meals they picked. Yeah, right, and, and this was what was brought to light by the uh, Australian study that uh, that got everybody all worked up about this. They, uh, they, the Australians, uh, give their um, uh, sailors a 100 nautical mile um, area that they consider was potentially contaminated. But what the Australians did that caught uh, attention here is that they ran some tests on uh, the desalination process and the fact that it was uh, a heat flash that uh, was needed to evaporate this water. And the question was asked, well, what happens to dioxin when it is heated? Well, that's even during the manufacturing process. That's what creates... Uh, dioxin, and let me rephrase that, what happens to the herbicide, the, 
the uh, 2,4-D and 2,4-5-T, whatever, that are mixed together. Well, when, when those are manufactured, you can control the amount of dioxin that is uh, created as a byproduct product when you control the heating of the uh, manufacturing mixture. There wouldn't have been as much dioxin in the herbicides if there was uh, less heat and more time taken to create this product. Um, but since it was a high-demand product and since uh, uh, Dow Chemical and Monsanto and all of their subsidiaries are, were in the uh, business of making money, uh, the less time you spent and the more of this you could crank out, uh, the heck with uh, worrying about the heat. Let's just get it, make it, make a batch, barrel it up, and, and send it off. Um, so during this heat process, um, the Australians concluded that the, the dioxin was actually enriched by about a factor of, of four, uh, and that's what they published in their report in 2002. When um, the IOM did their study of the Blue Water Navy and potential contamination uh, and exposure to the, the Agent Orange, they repeated that test and um, you know worked, worked through the, the numbers, etc. And they actually concluded in the report that was released in 2011 in May that the uh, Australians uh, did you know have a, a perfectly logical and reasonable thing that they were looking at, but uh, the numbers actually came out that that the uh, dioxin uh, toxicity was enhanced closer to 10 times as opposed to the four times that uh, 400% versus uh, 1,000% that the IOM came up with. So I think the picture that, that people ought to have in mind is uh, a ship is a very contained uh, closed system, and even if there was just a small amount of uh, Agent Orange that had been sucked up in the in the evaporative system, uh, the guys on board were getting small doses continuously uh, and and totally uh, uh, the entire time that that ship was off the coast of Vietnam. Um, and and Westpac cruises generally for the Navy generally ran six seven months to to a year. Um, that 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 would be in comparison to the soldiers that were on land that would have occasional large uh, uh, moments of of exposure. Uh, the spray planes came over and doused the whole platoon or something like that. Uh, but that didn't happen uh, continuously uh, 
and it was, you know, if it happened, it was a couple times during the the tour that those guys had. Uh, so the the high dosage single uh, event versus a small dosage continuous is what is what we're comparing in terms of. Uh, uh, that's possibly what the scenario was in the exposure of the guys offshore versus the guys on land. So there are a lot of components to this that uh, you know still need to be uh, worked out in terms of uh, knowing exactly what happened. But what the conclusion of the IOM study was is we will never know what happened because no one ever took any measurements during the course of the war. So you can't go back and find those definitive numbers. You can only speculate. Well, uh, one thing you do have, though, John, is uh, a lot of sick veterans, uh, sailors, uh, that uh, have have, uh, the same ailments as the one, uh, you know, the military personnel that had the boots on the ground. There's exactly the the gist of the whole thing, Carol. Uh, there was either two, there were, was either two causes of each of those diseases, or they were all uh, poisoned by the same thing. Uh, there, there's no way that you can look at it any other way than that. Uh, as far as anybody can tell, there weren't and actually couldn't have been two causes for the exact same diseases. So there's, in there's this kind particular, of a, you know, in this particular instance, I would say no. I would say they were the same cause. Uh, you have uh, someone with boots on the ground that had, uh, of course, sugar diabetes was one of the main ones, and then uh, heart trouble. They had they have some with heart troubles and and different ailments, but you have sailors with the exact same ailments, I would I would say if a sailor has one of the presumptives or a group of presumptives, which usually if you have one, you're going to have maybe a couple, two or three presumptives of the ones that they classify as boots on the ground, presumption essentially says uh, as soon as you get one of these diseases, uh, we're going to assume that the cause of it was the herbicide. Now that's what they say to the guys on the, with boots on the ground. Yes. Uh, so what they say to the Navy guys is if you get one of these diseases, there's no way that it could have been the herbicide. So there's Kind of a talking out two sides of the. Of the well, mouth. it's a double standard, and. Uh, uh, That's what the VA does, guys. <laughs> That's what they do. Well, they yeah. Where they are. Well, it, but it's it's a bigger picture than that because uh, the VA may do that, but uh, science and medicine are are uh, uh, developed. Uh, 
and if and if the scientific and medical evidence points to uh, something that's that's a no-brainer like that, then mm. uh, it, the VA shouldn't have an option of deciding whether or not they're going to accept it or not. It either was caused by the same deal or it wasn't. You're not on the same page. you got to realize the mindsets that they're up against. I mean, the only way they'll do something is if they're forced by the, a higher court to make them do something, and a lot of times they don't even do that. So, that's a, uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's just, uh, and these people eat attorneys for lunch, you know, and uh, they really don't care, so that's the issue. And uh, But I think you guys make some good progress, and once, the, once it gets written up stuff and we'll get it passed, uh, hopefully the courts will come in one of these days and take care of the whole thing in one day, you know. Well, and, that, yeah, and that's, that's the course that we've taken is that uh, the VA is probably not going to come to the table with a, a rational uh, conclusion of this. Uh, although, now, uh, there, there's hope here. Um, uh, tomorrow, our attorney and the director, who's uh, the director of the um, veteran, the Military Veteran Advocacy, Inc., John Wells, We'll have a meeting with um, the officials at, at the VA to determine what their stand really is, and uh, if they're going to give in at all, then they'll work out, uh, you know, what it is that Blue Water Navy is expecting to to hear in terms of, um, uh, you know, the, the exact benefits that that everyone else gets when they have the same diseases. So there's there's a chance that uh, tomorrow we can actually sit and have a reasonable discussion with, with the VA, and uh, something could come out of that. Uh, they're essentially backed into a corner because of this CAVC ruling of, of April called the, uh, the Gray versus McDonald uh, court ruling. And being backed into that corner, I think, uh, I think it, it's taken a little bit of the fight out of it, but we'll have to see what happens on that. That's good. That'll be a good update, and to get to keep an eye on that information because I mean that'll be another show itself, I'd say. Yeah, well, that's uh, that'll be you know that that'll be how we resolve the issue, and and uh, hopefully, hopefully it's uh, it's going to be favorable. Yeah, favorable. Uh, yeah. Now there's a there's a fault in here with this Blue Water Navy Act of 2015, um, which, by the way, uh, regardless of what the VA says and agrees to, we're still going to proceed with the legislation simply because without that legislation, uh, if one secretary of the VA agrees to one thing, we've already seen that another secretary can come along with the stroke of a pen and, and change that. But if it's uh, if it's a law, then they're not able to do that or not able to do that as easily. So we'll proceed with both courses uh, as we move as we move forward. That's good. You're fighting the, you're fighting the battle on two fronts, then. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, and actually three fronts because we're still uh, in court. Against the VA for um, what we had originally claimed was arbitrary and capricious 
uh, behavior uh, on the part of the VA for how they were determining um, how they handled Blue Water Navy versus other, and that's uh, exactly what the Court of Appeals for Veteran Claims said, is that the VA's, um, at least as they uh, looked at the definitions for harbors and inland waterways and river mouths, that they were being arbitrary and capricious and inconsistent in what they were uh, doing with the claims for the Blue Water Navy. So at least they used the same wording that we did, and that uh, that puts a little bit more punch behind our um, our court filing. That's right. You keep on swinging. Keep on going punches. Well, this seems, this seems to be as close as you guys have gotten, isn't it, John? Well, it it is, and and the uh, the momentum that that we've seen during this uh, first. Uh, uh, half of the 114th Congress has been um, pretty uh, uh, pretty nice to sit and watch. Uh, uh, we Chris Gibson uh, from New York has been our uh, supporter uh, in the House, uh, and on the Senate side, uh, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand has been the um, uh, one who introduced uh, the S-681. Uh, um, so New York has, has uh, come through pretty strongly in favor of the veterans. Uh, as a matter of fact, out of their, uh, oh my gosh, uh, I want to say 20 or more uh, representatives, there's only a small handful that hasn't uh, signed on yet. Uh, as a co-sponsor, so so we're real happy with what's happening there. Um, we have a, a map that needs to be updated, but it's uh, it's on the uh, news page at the www.bluewaternavy.org, and beside uh, the fact that I I need to get it updated, uh, we put information like that up as as soon as it's available, usually, and. Um, just the other day, I put up some ideas on what a blue water sailor ought to do right now. Here we're sitting in the middle of a of a time frame when uh, all the rules have been taken away. So an adjudicator, whether at the regional office or at the board of appeals level, cannot use the same rationale <clears throat> that they've been using to deny a blue water navy claim. And essentially what they've been doing previously is saying, well, because you were not present on the landmass, there's uh, no possibility that uh, that you were exposed to the Agent Orange. What the CAVC said is, uh, no, wait, there is a possibility that uh, at least these guys near the shore or near the harbors were exposed uh, to the Agent Orange um, and and in the process of doing that they mention the IOM report of 2011 and they tell the VA that, that their reliance on that report to say that there was some certainty that the Blue Water 
Navy uh, was not exposed, that's being thrown out. That's a, that's a false assumption. So with that gone, that really opens up the door for the entire Seventh Fleet. There is the probable, possible pathways, and that's the same thing that the IOM reported in their 2011 report, uh, that there were probable pathways of exposure. And this is something that the VA has been um, denying, um, although, although it's like sitting in a room denying your, to yourself because the rest of the world has sort of moved forward and said, well, the, the IOM gave us some very probable routes of exposure for the Seventh Fleet. Um, and they also found, by the way, that they couldn't prove at all that the Blue Water Navy was exposed, but on the same, uh, by the same token, they couldn't prove at all that the guys on the ground were exposed, nor the guys on the inland water were exposed, simply because there were no quantitative uh, measurements that were ever taken so that they could determine any kind of amount of exposure or area where it was uh, more probability, less probability. Uh, all of that was, was never done, and that really is, is why it was it was uh, accepted as a presumptive um, set of diseases, you know, to begin with. So um, the, the people who say, well, listen, you know, you guys out there, in the water, you, you had you had absolutely no exposure whatsoever, whereas the guys on the land uh, did. Uh, what the IOM said was, well, you know, if, if they did, we can't tell you what it was because we don't have any way to measure it. And uh, the same for the guys that were uh, on the water. You know, we can't tell you what it was, uh, but it, you know, it happened just as probably as it did on the land. And that's a little bit my own interpretation in there, but uh, but we can find that in the in the write up that the IOM did. So I'm, I'm pretty you confident. didn't have uh, a couple gallons of that drinking water off one of those ships you could pass around to them jokers. <laughs> see, well, see how much of a dead drink. <laughs> well, yeah, well, if, oh, we, if need we had it. All you need is fifty percent, John. You know yeah, that's a, right. All you need is fifty percent to kick the benefit of that rule in, because law does take over, right? That's what it's supposed to. That's that's right. If the VA you plays know, so by the rules, that's they're not that's playing all. by the rules, and uh, that's all it took was that right there. But they're, you know, if if the lease is locked and not, those harbors work contaminated because the rivers running into the harbors, and uh, you know, if, that's what that put that puts everything into perspective. See. Well, now, see, and, and Da Nang Harbor is a very special case because not only did they have the two rivers that fed into the harbor, but uh, the ranch hand operation took place right at the north end of the runway. And mm -hmm. there was a ditch that that captured all of the uh, runoff water from the, the two runways, the, two, the north end of both the... Uh, I guess north and south runway, and there was a ditch that led directly down to the harbor. 
and uh, on a daily basis when my ranch hand operation was loading the planes with uh, with the herbicide to spray uh, that was all rinsed off and the planes were rinsed off and the and the runways were rinsed off because it would uh, eat at the rubber uh, you know so the tires had to be saved so this this was all rinsed off and and uh, that filled the ditch and ran it down to the to the harbor. Well, that area that's at the north end of the runway is the exact area where the remediation project is now just finishing up uh, in Denang. That's that's where the highest level of contamination <clears throat> in all of uh, Vietnam was found. It was something on the order of uh, 360 times higher than a than the uh, global accepted level for dioxin, and uh, and back during the the Vietnam War, which was 40 plus years ago, uh, that indicates that 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 area was at least 360 times higher, and, and very probably double or triple that. Uh, you washed the stuff off the runway; it was all dirt over on that end. Uh, because of course nothing can grow because you're rinsing uh, Agent Orange into it, and that dust blew back onto the runway and blew all over the place, got into the uh, uh, wind streams and blew out to sea. It blew over the uh, stacks of supply and mail bags and stuff that were about uh, 70 yards uh, down the runway from that location, and. Uh, on a daily basis, that stuff was flown by what they call cod flights, uh, carry-on delivery. Uh, every <clears throat> every aircraft carrier sent in a cod plane to pick up the mail, pick up any personnel and supplies, and on a daily basis, there was that continuous cycle of stuff coming from the Detang uh, air base that was the most polluted place in Vietnam 40 years later, so guess what it was back then? And this stuff was on a continuous flow from the land out to the ships, from the land out to the ships. Um, we, at one point, asked the um, IOM committee uh, why that particular scenario wasn't considered in the uh, report that was done, and unfortunately the answer was, well, they, nobody told us to do that. Um, when that. When you read the intro to that report, it says that they looked at all of the possible and probable uh, routes of exposure. Well, there's, there's one that they didn't. Uh, in the follow-up study we did, there's also the air pollution, there's also the, the wind-borne particles, uh, not just the spray drift, but the, the, the dirt and uh, leaf particles and the particles from the burning uh, jungles and such that got caught in the wind and was carried out to the Seventh Fleet. Um, it, it's amazing when you're out at sea how much uh, dirt lands on everything. Uh, you, you see the sailors washing down the ship. 
Uh, it wasn't just a make-work job. It was because there's continuously a settlement of, of particles that land all over the place, and, and they have to be cleaned off. And uh, uh, is it possible that any of that contained any contaminated particles? Well, it's not only possible, but it's highly probable, because that's exactly uh, the wind patterns that... that uh, are, were in, are in existence, they were in existence then also. It blew from the shore out to the waters and essentially it, it makes a beautiful uh, uh, stream of air that, that went out and essentially covered the, the Seventh Fleet. So we've, we've got some, some good uh, uh, scientific uh, medical high-probability uh, items that, that... Well, we know the the Australians uh, paid their, I mean, compensated their sailors, didn't they? And the British did, too, didn't they? Uh, yes, uh, we're told that they are. I've run into a couple of uh, Australian sailors who essentially say, yeah, well, we're still fighting our claim or something like that mm-hmm. effect. And well, by golly, I keep running into guys that have boots on the ground that are still fighting their claims. Uh, they just happen to be using the wrong phrase or not using the right phrase or whatever it is, but the VA continues to either say, well, you don't have the right documentation or whatever. So um, when when we look at claims, we're not just uh, limited to blue water claims. There's There's been several Army and Marine uh, claims that we've helped with that, you know, they're still, after all these years and after the fact that they're supposed to be presumptively covered, uh, there are some guys still fighting those claims. That's the non-adversarial side there. The VA, John, they're uh, really good at that. They're, every time we've ever filed a claim, they've always come back with reasons to try to tear a claim down instead of going to prove it, no matter if it's presumptive or not. Well, that's right, yeah. They don't make much distinction when it comes to documentation. Yeah. They just... If you don't have it, you don't have it, and you don't yep. get it. Yep, that's true. That's just it's sad. It's well, sad it has to be now, that. You know, some of them old boys there at the VA are horrible, I know. But I did hear hear of a good incident that happened. Yeah, if they does something good, you want to be sure to put it out there because they don't get very much favorable. Publicity, I know. But I heard there was one of these raiders running down the hall, fell down the stairs and broke his arm, and, and he had to, his denial stamped in it, and he's laid up now for the next two or three weeks. So I thought that was a favorable <laughs> news coming out of the uh, well, yeah, that's, that's no, interesting. No, he's on the ball. He's on the ball. He couldn't use his other arm for some reason. I don't know. But he has denial arm got broke. He'd file a worker's comp claim and get tape his own medicine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he was going to file a worker's comp. He, he had to find someone to fill out the form for him. <laughs> he couldn't fill out the form. 
you'll probably get a bonus. <laughs> but now, let me let me interject here. Uh, there there are some really good people that are working on claims for the VA, and uh, what is what is holding them back are the specific rules that they have to follow, and uh, some of them are just. Uh, legal requirements because they're, that's, they're following the law to the letter. And some of them are via regulations that internally are the, uh, the law of how you handle the claim. So um, they're, they're good people working within the system uh, and, and they're making some good decisions once in a while. But, but on some of these issues where the main office has just put their foot down and said, there's no way, you know, all these claims need to be denied. Um, they're stuck between a rock and a hard place, too. Um, yeah. The choice well, is to do that orders. or lose their job. Yeah, they're taking orders, and uh, it's unfortunate that uh, they have to work under that that uh, criteria. Uh, that cut, that yeah. type of environment, it, it's horrible. I just imagine some of them do have a hard time sleeping. And uh, I, here's my opinion, guys, and this is a very, very straight opinion, that whoever's controlling the pocketbook is the one controlling the VA. Well, well that's, uh, I, I somewhat yeah. agree with that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, that's true. That would be money, true. Money talks. Money talks loudly, but also there's there's some decisions that have been made that seem to uh, last longer than any uh, uh, single presidency or any single administrative reign, and uh, uh, it doesn't matter what the costs are. Uh, which is the the saddest part of this whole thing is they're putting a cost, they're putting a price tag on the head of a veteran, and they're saying if you go over this price, that, that they're not worth it, um, and that's what has my hackles up, and that's why I'm sticking with this thing because that is wrong. Uh, from no matter what perspective you look at it, that's 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 wrong. We covered well, one the other day, John. We covered one the other day that went back 57 years, John. That's, yeah, I, I can see how that's possible. Yeah, so. But anything's possible. Anything's possible. Well, gentlemen, um, I hate to say it, but we're we're out of time. Uh, I hope. We're in the backing, we're in the backing of the tape, Gerald. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we're at the back end of the tape. So uh, before they shut us off, <laughs> uh, we better clear out. John, appreciate you uh, coming on there uh, representing the Blue Water Navy. You always do a good job for them, and uh, we're wishing them well. And 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 hope this this is one that makes it through for you guys. Well, we do appreciate it. We'll keep pushing. It's long overdue, I'll say. And we know there's a lot of sick vets out there, uh, uh, maybe veterans, and they need to be taken care of. And 
it shouldn't be this this difficult, that's for sure. So with that, uh, folks, remember, uh, Haddit does have a donate button. Uh, uh, come to Haddit, uh, if you get an opportunity, you can spare a dollar or two, uh, hit the donate button, every little bit helps. Uh, help T-Bird keep the, the site up and running. No one takes any fees uh, or monies for for their work uh, on Haddit. All the work's voluntary and and the money is just for uh, the costs that go along with running the websites and the uh, radio show and stuff. So with that, this will be Gerald Cook with John Basser. We'll be signing off for now. You've been listening to the Haddit.com Blog Talk Radio Show, sponsored by Haddit.com. All opinions expressed here are the opinions of the individuals appearing on the show and enough the opinions of Haddit.com or Blog Talk Radio. Tune in next time for another edition of Haddit.com Blog Talk Radio and the Ask Basher Show.